And the pants were pleather as well. They were tight as shit. And I only wore them once because the band only lasted for three gigs. But I wore these pants and I could not get them off afterwards. <laughs> I, I had to ask for some help. Let's put it that way. I'm Elizabeth Thompson, and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers and shakers from the finance, tech, and journalism worlds, as well as just plain cool people about music. On this week's episode, we're featuring our host, Nick Harcourt. That's right. If you're used to the mellifluous Birminghamian lilt of your usual MC, get ready because today, Nick and producer Elizabeth are switching things up with Nick in the hot seat and myself asking the questions. <laughs> Nick will be answering his own Proustian questionnaire quiz about music on this episode, which only seems right given that he is one of the foremost music experts in the country. For years, Nick hosted the deeply influential Morning Becomes Eclectic on LA's KCRW, where he turned the world on to artists including Lana Del Rey, Adele, Coldplay, Sigur Ross, the Arctic Monkeys, and so many more. He is the host of Guitar Center Sessions on DirecTV, and you can hear him every weekday morning on 88.5 FM from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. in Los Angeles. Nick, welcome to your own show. Scraping the barrel this week, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it's not that we had guests cancel on us last second. It's that we need to hear from the man himself. This should have been our number one episode out of the gates. You should have been our first guest. So it's, well, it's about time you came on your own show. <laughs> I'm, I'm here and, and I'm ready to answer your questions. I mean, my questions. Exactly. Well, first of all, Nick, what is going on in LA? How is it there? I know you guys are back to wearing masks. Is it mm. getting any better? What's going on? You know, the interesting thing for, for me as somebody who does host a daily radio show is that I had to figure out how to do a radio show out of my house at the end of March 2020. And once I figured that out, my life has not been really that much different than it was, apart from the fact that I just do everything at, at home. You know, Los Angeles, like the rest of the country, has just experienced wide swings of people being very frightened and then people being hopeful and then people getting nervous again. For me, I, I remember when they first told us that this thing was happening and, oh, you don't need to use masks because we need the masks for the first responders, et cetera. And then like yeah. three weeks later, they were like, oh, you need to be wearing masks. So I and my partner, we just really have been playing it very close and safe um, for the entire time. And, and even when California tried to open up a couple of months ago, we looked at each other and we said, well, you know, I think when we're on the street, perhaps we'll take our masks off. But when we go into stores, let's keep wearing them. So uh, when they brought the mask mandate back, we're just sort of the same as everybody else. It's, it looks like it's going to roll a little bit longer. And we were all thinking that live music was going to be returning. And it is mm -hmm. to a certain extent, but some of the tours are being canceled. So everything just seems to be really much pretty much on 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 a hold again you know la people are, are reasonably adherent to 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 the rules that we've <laughs> been having to live under and everybody seems to be doing their best 
That's good. Yeah, live music has been slowly coming back. I don't know if you followed the concerts in New York last weekend. There was a huge concert in Central Park. Well, I was watching um, it until that, the rain exactly, came. Exactly, yeah. and then and then Hurricane depending on how pretentious you are, either Henry or Henri hit, hit New York City. And I was in Queens seeing Wilco and Slater Kenny. And I felt I felt bad for the bands because Slater Kenny's set got totally cut short. But you know, both Slater Kenny and Wilco made a point to be like, clap if this is your first show back from, you know, the their first right, show right, right. post pandemic yeah. and everyone's cheering and going crazy. And then this like massive storm hits in the middle of it. So, um, so did, they, did they cancel the whole show or did they? They, they didn't, Wilco still played on, um, which was pretty impressive. It was pouring. That's... I established later, confirmed later, that while Wilco was playing the most rain that has ever fallen on New York City within a two hour span fell. Like it was like an absurd amount of rain. Some of my clothes that I was wearing to the concert like just dried out and were on <laughs> Wednesday. That was Saturday. So, you know, well, you know I was I was watching the, the, the New York show and it was one of those things. I, I was just recording it and sort of coming in and out as it was actually running live. Uh, and, and clearly, when you've got a massive show like that on national television, nobody's taking any chances. Yeah. They don't want to see anybody get hit by lightning. Whereas, no. I, I don't know where you were. Were you in Brooklyn or something? Wilco in Queens, in Queens, oh, yeah, in Queens, at yeah, Forest yeah. Hill and Stadium. They probably weren't as worried about people dying in the rain because there were no yeah. cameras. There were yeah. no cameras. They didn't have to worry about Barry Manilow getting electrocuted. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that yeah. would have been that would have been a big bummer. I did see or hear him riffing with Anderson Cooper for 30 minutes afterwards. And Oof. that was just fantastic. Go go find it. All right. Maybe they should have a podcast somewhere. together. Well, he tried he tried to finish tried to finish his set over the oh. phone with <laughs> Anderson Cooper. It was pretty funny. <laughs> Let me ask you this about LA. So, you know, amongst your laundry list of credits that I read off in your introduction, you've also done music supervision for TV shows like 90210 and movies like He's Just Not That Into You. Mm. How many movies and TV shows do you think you've inadvertently supervised just by having a popular radio show in L.A.? listened well, to very, by people in the biz is that a painful yeah, question yeah, that's, that, that's a very interesting uh, story and i'll i'll be as polite as i can be in mm -hmm. my answer but you know i i did that show morning becomes a collector i haven't done it now for 10 or 12 years but i did it for 10 years and it was before people were downloading music from the internet it was before pandora it was before streaming when i first started obviously and the show became uh go-to listening for everybody in the business because mm -hmm. I played a lot of new music and as you mentioned some of those artists that we helped break by giving them their first airplay and remember that you know if you've got a good radio show in Los Angeles the audience is going to be full of people who are making television people who are directing films people who are putting music in tv commercials etc cetera, etc cetera. so mm. uh indirectly it's got to be hundreds mm -hmm. in including trailers and i will tell you quite happily that the soundtracks to tv shows like the oc wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been listening to the show mm. soundtracks to movies like garden state i mean i remember that came out and i was like wow that's my playlist and and, and <laughs> And a year later, I found myself working on another movie, the, the Dukes of Hazard movie. That's mm -hmm. if, you, if you want to dig into that, we can. But I was working on that. And one of the editors was telling me how uh, Zach Braff would come in every morning after listening to my show and say, can you try and find that song by uh, Death Leopard <gasps> or, or whatever? So 
hey, it's the public airwaves. It's free. You can listen. You know, although it is public public radio, I I don't know if he's a subscriber of the station or not. But yeah, there's a lot of people who borrowed and leaned very heavily on those playlists. Wow. So maybe Zach Braff has you to thank for the shins or the shins has you to thank for Garden State. Well, look, I I, I know I was in the mix. Let's, mm-hmm. let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive, Nick. I'm 38 and the OC and the Garden State soundtrack came out both when I was in early, early college years and they were, No, and they were, those were two really like big pieces of music. Like that's how people found out about Phantom Planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of those bands. Well, I I will tell you that when I got the first OC soundtrack, it came in the mail and I looked at the CD (laughs) and I was like, oh my God. You know, right down to the unsigned bands as well. Because we used to play a lot of unsigned bands. So there were artists like uh, Alexi Murdoch and the 88 who we played local bands. And all of a sudden they're on the soundtrack of that show. And good for them is what I say, because any opportunity to spread the word of independent music, whether it's on my radio show or somebody else taking the idea and putting it in their (laughs) TV show, it's all good with me. Very noble of you, Nick. Good, good answer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you're asked this question all the time, but who have been some of your favorite interview subjects or guests or people that you've interviewed over the years, either on your show or at events? I will tell you that I've been very lucky to interview some pretty big names in the music. And at the same time, I've interviewed tons of independent artists. Some have gone on to be successful, some not. My favorite interviews I would have to say that the first time I interviewed Coldplay was mm-hmm. was kind of fun, not because it was necessarily a great interview, but because of how awkward they were, because mm-hmm. they were so new. Yeah. They were so new. When they came on my radio show, uh, A Morning Becomes Eclectic, it was the first live performance they'd ever done in the United States, that show. The next evening or later that evening, they went and did a, a K-Rock Acoustic Christmas or something, but their first ever show was our show. So that was fun because Chris Martin, I think, will happily admit that he was, you know, not that socially sort of <laughs> able to roll with conversation. He's, mm-hmm. he's gotten a lot better, obviously, mm-hmm. but that was fun. Um, I got to interview Paul McCartney. Oh, and, wow, you did? Yeah, you know, my, my, I mean, the reason we're talking today is because my dad played Beatles records when I was a kid. So, I know, we'll get to the um, Beatles later, obviously, in your responses, I imagine. Yeah, so when I got to interview Paul McCartney, he came into LA, this has got to be like a dozen years ago now, and he did an in-store at Amoeba Records. Um, I can't remember the name of the album, Memory Full, I think it was called. And uh, he came and did this in-store and we got the interview and the idea was that I'd go and see the sound check, which was great because there was nobody there, and then interview him in a hastily arranged green room, stock room, (laughs) upstairs uh, above Amoeba. And I I was thinking to myself, how do I I prepare to interview Paul McCartney? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like the Beatles just are so responsible for so much of my life. And I was like you're prepared. Don't, don't, don't overthink it. And I just went in there and we had a fabulous conversation. He was amazing. I had my my kids with me who were like three at the time and he was running around. They'd set up a a green room with loads of vegan and vegetarian food and fruit. And he was running around putting raspberries in little cups for my kids and say, here, try this. These are raspberries. Oh 
my god that were you fun. like disassociating while you were talking to him or were you able to stay in your body <laughs> i think the right answer is to say both simultaneously right <laughs> yeah. so you know people like paul willie nelson a couple of times he's a lot of fun i got to interview david bowie which is just mm. oh, God, un unbelievable and you know so many uh, people at that level but you know a, a lot of people um who are just starting out are kind of fun as well so mm -hmm. I, I tended on those conversations to keep the new bands or the new artists shorter because they don't have that much to talk about let's be honest mm -hmm. um and then with a legacy artists like you know mccartney or neil young or somebody like that you better do your research although as i said for, for mccartney i felt that my life had been the research for that one so mm -hmm. no i've been really lucky and the guitar center tv shows long form interviews interviewing people i would never have imagined myself having a conversation with when i was the cool kid, the indie kid over at KCRW, <laughs> you know, I got to talk to people like Merle Haggard, like six mm. months before he passed away and James Taylor and just really fantastic conversations. And at the end of the day, for me, at this point in my career, those are the, the things that I enjoy, because when you have a conversation with somebody, if you're really listening, you can learn something about yourself at the same time. So mm. that's mm. what it uh, comes down to for me. I don't think I answered your question at all, but you did. Let's quick quickly talk about this show before we get to your questions that you've written for yourself that I'm going to ask you. <laughs> okay, I don't remember. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, as far as this show goes, you know, we came up, you and I came up with the premise for this show. I think we're in our 16th episode, wow. which was talking to people about people from like the, the finance world about music, because yeah. it seems sort of um, incongruous. Like these people, these are people that never really get to, if they're interviewed, they're talking about the stock exchange or ETFs or, you know, cryptocurrency. Sure. Um, but as we've done the interviews, we've started to expand it out. We're now talking to people from the tech world too, writers, journalists, you name it, just generally fascinating people. So far, have there been any answers to the questions that you asked that have surprised you or that any that stuck with you from guests that you can remember? We've spoken to such a diverse group of people. And uh, as you as you mentioned, we've started expanding it out from just the finance world. We spoke to Priya Dewan from Gig Life, I, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe about four or five episodes ago. She's based out of Singapore. And as you may or may not know, dear listener, Singapore is a fairly strict place to live. I, I, I'm pretty sure that they still don't allow chewing gum in, in stores in Singapore. <laughs> Seriously. Really? Um, and she was talking about getting Marilyn Manson cassettes, I think, or CDs or mm. something like that. Something just completely unexpected. Yeah, it was funny. She went from talking about like, oh, I love 80s music to like, like, well, my first album was Marilyn Manson. But she talked about where she bought it. Do you remember how she got the Marilyn Manson album? Because that was a funny story. I think she said that she got it from a, a skate shop that they got those guys sort of had cassettes and CDs that were sort of under the counter at the skate shop. Yeah. And if, you, if you knew who to ask, like, you know, you got any Marilyn Manson? <laughs> that was cool. It was uh, that was I thought was a really interesting answer so far and a very cool answer. Nothing cooler than buying something under the, the counter at a skate shop. Yeah, I, enjoy, I enjoyed speaking to her. And, you know, we've been lucky. I think everybody we've spoken to so far has had something really cool and interesting to say. And that's that's the great thing about music, isn't it? You know, because it affects us all in, in, in different ways, depending on where we were, how old we were, mm -hmm. what generation we're from. 
And I think everybody's got that moment where they, you know, suddenly realize that the, the world is a little different from perhaps the, the safe world that they've been growing up in. And there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things out there to get excited and scared about. Definitely. Okay, so are you ready to answer the questions that you wrote for this show? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I added some curveballs in here too. Oh, great, thanks. To keep you on your toes. All right, Nick, what is your first musical memory? My first musical memory is hearing the Beatles records that my dad would bring home. I was, you know, five when the Beatles started. Born in 1957, a very good year, I, I, I should say, year of the rooster, I do, I do believe. Oh. And so by the time 1962, 63 came around, I'm a five-year-old kid. My parents at that time were in their late 20s, early 30s or something like that. Mm -hmm. My dad was a journalist um, in Birmingham. And back in the day, they had promo stuff just the same as we do now. People will send you CDs if you're in the music business or entertainment. And back in the day, my dad would come home with seven-inch singles and he would play the Beatles. And I just remember the excitement that the, the, the parents, you know, had when they put this music on. Again, remember it's 62, 63, something mm -hmm. like that. Only 18 years after World War II. My parents grew up in World War II, but they were both evacuated from their various cities. So, wow. you know, the Beatles very much were a band that for that generation changed the world from black and white to color. And you could feel there was a palpable feel when they, you know, played these records at home. So that's my early musical memory. Probably something like Please Please Me or She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, they really are. I, you know, like so many people, I also grew up, my mother, my mother was born in 1950. So she was a teenager and she loved the Beatles and we had Beatles everything growing up. And my sister and I used to play her Beatles albums. The amazing thing about the Beatles is that I don't listen to them all the time. Obviously, I've heard everything so many times. So it's not, oh, let me put a Beatles record on mm -hmm. today. I don't do that. <laughs> but when I come across the, the Beatles music, I play it every now and then on the radio. Or most recently, the Paul McCartney documentary with Rick Rubin on Hulu, which if you haven't seen it, please, no, ladies, I gentlemen, yeah. boys, girls, you got to see it. It's stunning. Rick Rubin does an amazing job. I'm very jealous, but uh, he's, he's probably the right guy to do that as a producer because he understands musicians, he understands production, and he's able to have the conversation with Paul where it's an inclusive conversation. You don't feel like you're hearing two music heads internalizing all their stuff. It's fascinating. And all these years later, I learned more about those songs and learned more about the process. I, I would recommend anybody do that. But what I was going to say is I can come back to the Beatles after not listening to an album for many years and listen to something and I'm just gobsmacked every mm -hmm. time. I know. Amazing they were and, and what they achieved between 1960 and 1970 is just unbelievable. Yeah, how much they changed and how experimental they were. And Very also, experimental, yeah. Yeah, how timeless. I mean, I have a four-year-old nephew and he's now in a pirate's phase and less, less interested in music. But when he was about two and learning how to talk, he really, my sister would play him twist and shout and she loves you and he really was fascinated by it she would show him the live versions too and he chose the correct beetle to be his favorite beetle which is george george harrison <laughs> is the correct beetle to be your favorite beetle i don't want to hear a single thing about it 
but we do love okay. Paul. We do love Paul. <laughs> Everyone's got their own beetle. That was the beauty of the Beatles. There was one for everybody. I know. I know. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Okay, so very quickly, I'm going to tell you before that, that the first album I got, my parents gave me, which was Help in 1965, I think. And then a couple of years later, the first album I bought, I kind of half bought with my mom. When Sgt. Peppers came out in 1967, I'm nine. I had 15 shillings in my, <laughs> in my money box. It sounds like I'm from Tale of Two Cities or some other Dickensian <laughs> novel. But yeah, it's 15 shillings. And my mom gave 15 shillings as well. So for 30 shillings, which in today's money in the UK is £1.50, which is probably like, I don't know, 2 or $3 today, mm. that album. But the first album I bought with my own money was Deep Purple's Fireball which I think was 1971. It had the single Fireball on it. I can't remember. And then there was a whole bunch of cool stuff on that. And I was a big Deep Purple fan at that time. I bought their next album, Machine Head, as well. But the first albums that I bought, I, I kind of swapped them as well. You know, I got mm. an album and I'd listen to it. And then, then somebody would say, hey, I've got Slade Alive. I'd love that Fireball album. So I'd swap it for that. And then I think I swapped that for the first Black Sabbath album. Like 1971, 72 was a fun time. Coming of age, 13, 14, discovering your own music. Yeah. Yeah. And coming of age in Birmingham, which is home to so much music, right? Black Sabbath. Well, Black, um, Sab Black Sabbath are our, uh, you know, they're, they're our hometown heroes as well. Mm -hmm. and, and they're from Aston, which is a suburb just outside of Birmingham, which is actually where my football team comes from, Aston Villa mm -hmm. Soccer. Mm -hmm. Black Sabbath, uh, Moody Blues. When I first met David Bowie, which I alluded to a little earlier on in this conversation, the first thing he said to me was like, so where are you from? And I was like, I'm from Birmingham. He goes, oh, Moody Blues. You know, <laughs> started talking about the Moody Blues. Uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners. Uh, it, oh it's not as, not as famous as uh, some other cities, but we, we love the bands we have. Uh, broadcast, Pop Will Eat itself, some, oh. some good stuff. What about Jeff Lynne from ELO is from Birmingham, right? Electric Light Orchestra, yeah. And that band came out of The Move, mm. which was a band in the 60s and 70s. And the two main guys in that band were Jeff Lynne and uh, Roy Wood. They went on to form Electric Light Orchestra, as it was called then. They subsequently shortened it to ELO. They made that first record together. And then Roy Wood went off and did something called Wizard, which is a whole other thing. But uh, yeah, they're... They're from Birmingham. That's how we say it. Birmingham. Birmingham is, is in Alabama. <laughs> Birmingham. 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 Yeah. It's like, um. What was the first concert that you went to without your parents? Gary Glitter. <gasps> oh my gosh. Amazing. <laughs> I just had to drop it. Yeah. <laughs> I was ashamed for the longest time after we found out he was a pedophile. But um, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, well, <laughs> it's a good job I didn't meet him when I went to the concert because I was like 13 <laughs> or something. But it was uh, it was Birmingham Town Hall, which is a, a venue that from the outside looks like a cheap Acropolis. I went on my own. I must have been, yeah, like 71, 72, 13, 14, something like that. And uh, it was fantastic. I loved it. Are you kidding? With like all the glam and the glitter. And um, I was a big glam fan. That was probably my coming of age, really. All the glam music, like, you know, T-Rex and mm -hmm. Sweet. I mean, and Bowie fit into the, the glam thing at the beginning as For well. For sure. Yeah. Did, did uh, Gary Glitter have Rock and Roll Part 2 out then? 
That was the song. That was the song. That was the song. And he wow. had another one out. I mean, I think that had been a hit for the last year or so before I got to see him. And then they had another one out called Hello at the time. The thing that I loved about it, um, and I remember I was sort of in the balcony, sort of left uh, above the stage. So I had a pretty good view down to the stage was every three songs, he would disappear and the band would just sort of play some kind of jam. And they were all dressed in fire out glittery costumes as well. And he would do a costume change. Amazing. I think he did like four costume changes during the show, and that was impressive. That is impressive. Yeah. We need to bring back costumes, don't you think? Musicians. Costumes are good. Gary Glitter, not so good. <laughs> Gary Glitter can stay where he is, but costumes should come back. I'm all about dressing up. Definitely. So you went to the concert alone? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. I, yeah. I mean, my recollection, as I said, is... I remember where I stood and I remember watching, I'd never seen anything like it. And uh, I think I've said in, you know, interviews in the past where people say, so, you know, what was your coming of age music? Cause the Beatles obviously is the Beatles and that sort of started me and lives with me all these years later. But when I was watching top of the pops, which was the English television chart show, like our equivalent of bandstand or whatever. And I would see guys like Mark Boland and David Bowie and the band, The Sweet, with Brian Connolly as a vocalist, and Slade. Mm -hmm. And I would see these guys with makeup on and eyeshadow and these huge fuck-off platform shoes covered in glitter and satin jackets. And I was just like, whoa, what is this? It, yeah. it, it, it was just so enthralling and exciting and interesting. And again, we have these marks in our life, I think, where things change. And for me, a lot of those marks are music, obviously, you know, breaking up with wives and crap like that is <laughs> part of it. But, but for music, I've had very a number of things that have come across my ears through the years that have just changed the way I think about everything. And discovering mm -hmm. glam as a 13, 14 year old was definitely a, a, a turning point for me. As a 13 year old listening to that and seeing seeing that, what was your perception of that as a boy? I'm curious, like men in makeup wearing yeah, yeah, yeah. these really yeah. tight outfits and like, yeah. you know, David Bowie, obviously, Mark Bullen, like they they really brought some playfulness and even experimentation to gender but they were still these still like dudes. heartthrob dudes. Yeah, yeah. What did you make of that as a kid? You know, I don't think I understood it at the time, but yeah. if you ask me that question now, sexy. Yeah. I mean, come on. You That's know, cool. you've got these guys who are just turning it upside down, playing with gender. And in 1970, that was kind of like, you know, certainly not mainstream mm -hmm. uh, and, and until they sort of made it mainstream. But it just made me realize that the world that I'd grown up in, which was fairly simple, fairly conservative, not that my parents were conservative, but conservative upbringing in 1970s England. Oh, my God, it was such a depressing place. And all of a sudden, there's this color and glitter and shininess and guys looking like girls. And I'm just like, I don't know what that is, but that looks interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. I want that. <laughs> yeah, I want some of that. On that note, what do you listen to when you like to dance? A little Motown, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, and the funny thing is, um, I didn't really grow up listening to Motown. I was very aware of it, but the world was, at least in my world, in, in the Midlands, in, in the UK, was very divided at that point. It's like you didn't like everything. You had to pick your lane, right? Mm -hmm. So, So if you picked glam as your lane, 
you probably weren't into Motown. If you picked hard rock as your lane, you probably weren't into Motown. It wasn't until later, probably in my twenties, that I really started to sort of get into that music. And there's just so much fun and, and happiness in that music. I love the Temptations. Mm-hmm. I love the Four Tops. I love the Supremes. And then more recently, hey man, I I, I can get in a trance with the best of them. You know, if we're uh, if we're listening to some really cool dance music. EDM, as they call it now, electronica, mm. as it's called, whatever. If I'm listening to, to something like that, yeah, I, I, I can dance to that. But, you know, you can dance to anything if you're in the right mood. I remember being at Coachella. I haven't been for a long time, but I went to some of the early ones. And I remember being there, I want to say 2005, and Gang of Four, who are one of my favorite bands ever, mm. had gotten the original lineup back together and they did an album and they did a tour. And I fortunately got to interview them as well which was just fantastic as a fan and then i'm in this field and you know the polo fields at, at coachella and gang of four are on the main stage and i danced for their whole set like 40 minutes i had a friend with me who just looked at me with his chin on the floor for the whole set <laughs> you were moved by the music sometimes you can't help it you really can't yeah. and it's better than just standing still with your arms folded being mr cool or mrs being, cool at a rock show you know yeah i mean Come especially in, in la where everybody's just standing there at the back of the room just sort of nodding you know exactly just, that's what yeah. you're that's what everyone does at shows but i think dancing is amazing yeah if you feel the music dance and then the other thing for me with music is it does one of two things to me it either makes me think if there's some deep lyrical content or it makes me tap my toes, one or the mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. So on the thinking note, the introspection note, what mm. do you listen to when you're feeling sad or melancholic? Yeah, um, well, I drink. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> Not anymore. I don't. I'm sober a little bit of time. Congratulations. Right That's a, thank, a you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I would recommend it for anybody, by the way. I'm not somebody here who's going to tell you what to do. But, you know, if you've got a drinking problem, um, you can, you can get help. You really mm-hmm. can just, just do the work. Um, mm-hmm. Because if I can get sober, trust me, anybody can get sober. So, <laughs> so no, that was a joke. I, I didn't mean to, to pitch a, a sobriety, but it's a good thing. I, yeah, just, I make so much better decisions these days, but um, no, if I'm sad, I, I, I mean, I got to tell you, like some of those guys from the early seventies, like Nick Drake, mm-hmm. John Martin, mm-hmm. the, the late lamented John Martin spelt with a Y, Cat Stevens, you know, some of the early stuff. And then more recently, Damien Rice, who, who I love and had a big part in helping him um, break in the States. Some of those things that just tap into those, those emotions uh, that, that you can connect to. Nick Drake and John Martin, they're sort of in the same realm yeah. or same. Yeah, like 1971, something like that. Yeah. Nick Drake is such a sad, I mean, his story of in and of itself is, is a, a bummer to me, if you will, because he never really saw fame or, or how wildly successful his music eventually became later on, years and years later. He had died before his music got really popular, correct? Yeah, he, he died and I'm pretty sure he took his own life. So, right. you know, you want to talk about uh, deep sadness that that dude had it but it's he made such beautiful music as as well and john martin he passed away about 10 years or so ago but there's an amazing documentary about him as well it's showing the guy towards the end of his life when he was just not in good shape and Mm. to be honest with you an alcoholic who drank himself to death but um yeah (laughs) if you want to get into sadness start listening to these guys who were just so 
fucked up that, you know, know. yeah, it's sad, but there's lessons in that, right? It's like, you know, but for the grace of God, there go. Exactly. And they've been there. That's how I feel about Elliot Smith, you know, gone too soon, depressive type and Nirvana too. Some of, of, of Kurt Cobain's lyrics still are incredibly profound and moving to me about being just sad. Um, you know, one of the things that I've learned as I've fortunately gotten older is that if you can get through your 20s, it gets better, you know? <laughs> I um, would, you could not pay me to be 25 again. Like, no I would not, I can't, never. The, the, the anxiety, the bad choices. Oh, my God. Yeah. The, the everything. I have no desire to go back to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm with you. So I, I listen to happy songs now. Good. <laughs> what band or artist do you love who you feel never got the big break they deserved? Well, it's strange that that question comes right after the last one. I don't think we necessarily built it in, in that order when we put the questionnaire together. But the reason I say that is because of what we were just talking about uh, relates to the artist that I'm going to um, tell you about. There was a guy uh, called Matthew J. Uh, J-A-Y. Um, and uh, he had one full-length album out in the early 2000s, I think, maybe 2000, 2001. I don't know if you can look that up while I'm talking to you. Yeah. But he had one album out on Capitol Records, and there was a song on that called Let Your Shoulder Fall, which I am still going to put in a television show or a movie somewhere sometime. Not that I do music supervision anymore, but it's such a beautiful, beautiful song. And he comes from that Nick Drake kind of world, I think, a little bit. And I thought that he would uh, break. I thought that song would break him, and it, it never did. And unfortunately, he also died young, and nobody's sure if he fell out of the window or jumped oh. out of the window. But yeah, yeah. Matthew J. I hope that you do get to put it on a TV show or a movie and a movie because it sounds... Wonderful. I'm going to smash play on it, as the kids say, after we hang up. <laughs> Please do. Um, I have a question for you that you don't usually ask people. Have you ever lied about having listened to an acclaimed band or album that everybody always drops, um, you know, some obscure thing or like a kind of like difficult album? Have you ever lied about that? like at a party or to just like make small talk with somebody? No. Damn it. Well, here's the thing for me. I I find my life is a lot easier when I don't fib or lie. And don't get me wrong. When I was younger, I was as big a liar as anybody. And then I discovered as I got a little bit older and became a bit of an adult, especially by the time I got into like my early 30s that, you know, that didn't really serve me. And the worst part about it, of course, is you don't remember the lies that you tell. So I just sort of figured out that if somebody asked me, and to be honest with you, because I'm in a position, I guess, where people recognize me, you know, at least in Los Angeles or whatever, I, I don't see the point. You know, if somebody says, so did you say, no, nah, don't know it. That's true. That would come it's back just, to haunt just, you. Yeah. Just easier. Yeah. Yeah. I can't begin to tell you how many bands and books I've pretended to read that I didn't really read. <laughs> Well, I don't read. When people say, have, have you seen, have you read such and such a book? My answer is, you know, I don't really read a lot because I don't <laughs> think I've Good read for you. Yeah. You know what? Do what works for you. Sure. That's what uh, I do. <laughs> what band have you come across lately? A new artist, maybe new to you or 
maybe they've been around and you just discovered them or they literally are brand new. You obviously have the Spark playlist with all new music, which is so good. And everybody who's listening should go listen to that on Spotify because Nick updates it every week with like just about every cool new release under the sun. It's curated. Yeah, um, it, is, it, it is curated. And I would, if we get the opportunity to plug this, then please do. It's on Spotify. It's called Spark Radio, new music, uh, new artists. And I do put eight to 12 new songs on there every week. I just sort it of- It is so good. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad you like it. I do go through stuff that comes across my desk and I go digging a little bit as well. Recently, there, there's been an artist that I like that I added to uh, the playlist, I think, just a, a couple of weeks ago. And it's, a, it's an artist uh, based here in Los Angeles, a female artist by the name of Chrisol, and it's spelled Chris like the person's name, C-H-R-I-S-O-L. And uh, I haven't really heard anything too much apart from the song that's on the playlist, which is called Juliet. And I really like that a lot, mm. female artists. I also really like this band that we put on the playlist last week. Are they from Scotland? I think they are. They're called The Clockworks. And they're one of those new sort of punky pop bands that are coming out of the UK. There's a ton of that music happening right now. There's also another band who I know are from Scotland called Baby Strange, mm -hmm. who I really like a lot. And they're just fast, punky, power pop punk. And I, I, I love that stuff. So that's a couple of bands that I'm listening to right now and digging. There's another artist out of LA that also we put on the list last week called Hana, H-A-N-A, -A, and then Vu, V-U. Mm. a song on, on the list from last week called Everybody's Birthday. So, um, you know, the thing is, because I listen to music for a job, I tend not to be somebody who will throw albums on that often, you know, yeah. because I'm really just listening to songs for, you know, the radio show or for the playlist, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I tend to be somebody who will recommend a song at this point rather than, oh, you should see the entire catalog of such and such a person. Yeah, I rarely listen. I know you've talked about this to guests on this show, but I rarely listen to albums like straight through. I tend I remember, to listen to mixes of stuff. Before iPods, obviously, because iPods mm -hmm. changed the world when everybody was suddenly able to, you know, program their own radio station, so to speak. Before that, I would get asked every year by Rolling Stone or Pace or whoever it was, what's your top 10 albums of the year? Mm. And I remember probably around a dozen years ago, maybe longer, maybe, let's see, maybe 2006 or something like that, 2007, somebody said, so what's your top 10 albums of the year? And here's where the honesty came in. I said, <laughs> gotta be honest with you, I haven't listened to 10 albums this year. I can, give you, I can give you 10 songs, but I don't listen to albums anymore. And most people don't. This is like 10, 12, 15 years ago, whatever it was. And then obviously now with the streaming and you can build your own playlists. I don't know people who listen to albums anymore. There are older people who still do. And I realize that I'm a little older, but my business is a little younger, if you, mm -hmm. if you understand what I'm saying. So I tend to listen to music the same way that uh, younger people are consuming music. Yeah. And I mean, you see that like in the past, I don't know, 15 years or so, like the way that sites like Pitchfork do their rankings at the end of the year, it's become this big, you know, every site has a best of list of up the wazoo of movies yeah. and TV shows. And yeah, yeah. it's like a thing in media. But Pitchfork has always, in addition to albums, had the, you know, top hundred songs of the year, which I've always appreciated. And found some great music through just reading that at the end of every year. Try. Let me ask you a question, interviewer. Yeah. Elizabeth. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you have like 
the regular sites that you go to for for things like music or food or whatever it is or do you are you constantly looking because for me there's so much out there and a lot of it is people repeating stuff and borrowing stuff etc cetera, etc cetera. um but i literally have like maybe less than 10 websites that i visit a couple of them are music related do you i mean where do you find new music so I mostly discover it on Spotify, like the Spotify's algorithm will push you into if you click play on one song, it doesn't always just go to the artist's next song on that album that you've been right. listening to, it'll, it'll go into similar music. So right. I've discovered a, a lot of bands that way, admittedly. But for music, social media has chopped that world up a little bit so that you can you can get music recommendation or news on on Instagram. You can get it on Twitter. You know, you can um, well, see and what's trending. TikTok is TikTok is the place that's breaking music these days. As, as, Definitely. As you know. The only one that I really take a look at is uh, Brooklyn Vegan. I, I still find that that's a, a pretty decent site. Yeah, Brooklyn yeah. Vegan. I kind of like lived and died by when I first moved to New York to find out about shows and, you know, they have an infamous commenting section. I don't know if they have it turned on anymore, but back in the early days of, of blogs and digital media, when you wanted a million comments on blogs, their commenting community was sort of known for um, being amusingly snotty, yeah, among yeah. other things. Yeah. Well, they, they, they still are invested in independent music, I think, and I'm sure I could spend all day digging around for stuff, but I get a lot of stuff sent to me, obviously, and then mm -hmm. I do take a quick look around and see what everybody else is talking about. But most of them are talking about the same bands all the time. You know, uh, a lot of people are just quite happy to just be spoon fed their music. But if you really yeah. want to dig in, you, you can. And there's a ton of stuff out there. When I was a kid, it was the New Musical Express or Melody Maker. It's like once a week you'd go buy the the music paper and that's where you would discover stuff, you know? Yeah. Let me ask you this. You might not want to answer this question on the record. This is not one of your questions. What band or artist do you feel like you've never understood what the big deal was about them? that everybody was obsessed with and somebody that's been wildly successful. So we're not dissing, we're not being critical of any band that's like struggling currently, like a huge band that you are just like, I don't get it. I don't get what the big thing is. Maroon 5. Ooh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's because Adam Levine is so handsome. Everybody loves his bod and his tats. Yeah, well, that's got nothing to do with the music, though, does it? Let's be honest. So, you know, uh, and again, hey, man, I've got tattoos, too. I, I, I get it. I don't think I uh, work out as much as he does, but I, I understand that part. No, the, the thing is, uh, they were called something else before Maroon 5. They were called Kara's Flowers. Oh, yeah. And I remember them being pitched to the KCRW show 20 years ago, right? And hearing the music and being like, nah, it's not really, that doesn't really work for me it wasn't that it was shit it was just didn't yeah. really speak to me and then you know they came out with the the maroon five album a year or two later and just exploded and a number of people not everybody but a number of people were saying to me hey you could have had them when they were but i was like i didn't like what they were doing then and i like what they're doing now even less so 
I'm good. <laughs> it's not my thing. And, they and that's okay. And, and that's okay. Massive, massive, massive band, obviously. They really did. And he's a, he's a judge on The Voice, right? Yeah. I, yeah. He, he's, he's, he's doing all sorts of things, you know. <laughs> look at him go. Yeah. Look at him go. <laughs> okay, well Nick. Done. Here's well our final done, question. Adam. Here's our final question. Yes. What band or artist is your guilty pleasure that you kind of would maybe be embarrassed if someone saw it on your Spotify playlist or in your car or, you know? There's a couple. Mm-hmm. I think I've, said to a couple of people that I've asked this question to that, you know, Duran Duran will <gasps> forever be in my heart mm-hmm. because right place, right time. They're from Birmingham, my hometown, although Simon LeBond's not, but the rest of the guys are. And uh, let's see if I can do a quick time travel here. 80, 81, something like that. They were playing around Birmingham at a couple of venues there that were the new romantic venues because mm-hmm. that was the thing at the time with them and Spandau Ballet mm-hmm. and a couple of others. And there was a, a place called the, the Holy City Zoo that they used to play at and another place called the Rum Runner, which I'm not too sure if it's still there or not. That's a club that's gone through a thousand incarnations from like a, a tiki bar back in the 50s or something to the new romantic place to whatever. And I always loved them. I, I bought that first album and, you know, how it starts off with girls on film with mm-hmm. the, the camera clicking and then the videos. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Rio is one of the greatest videos ever made. I mean, it looks crappy these days, but when you think about when music videos were new and how influential they were, a lot of people talk about the British invasion from the 60s. There was a second one in the early 80s when MTV started and the only people making videos were all these new romantic bands out of the UK, like those guys. Um, And a flock of seagulls who Mm -hmm. I didn't like. But uh, yeah, so Duran Duran always... And I did add a new song to the playlist that they did with those Japanese girls, Chai, just a it's couple of good. weeks ago. I was listening to it at the gym. I listened to your playlist and I was like, what's this? And yeah. it was Duran Duran. Never met him, by the way. Maybe one day. You're but, going uh, yeah. to. It's in, the, it's in the stars. And then the other one is Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Mm. Because that album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, again, Game changer. 1985, I think. I was actually living in Australia at the time, which is a whole other story for another conversation (laughs) another day. But it it involved following a girl, obviously. And uh, so, so when I was living in Australia in 1983 until 88, the world was very different. We didn't have the Internet. So, you know, music traveled slowly from Europe or the States to to Australia. And so I was a little behind on what was going on. And I took a trip home after two years there and walked into a a club and they were playing Frankie Goes to Hollywood Relax. And I was like, oh, my God, this is (laughs) fucking amazing. You know, and everybody's dancing. Of course, everybody's doing drugs as well. But that's (laughs) another thing. Everybody's like doing poppers and speed and God knows what. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Love that album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. And not just Relax, although that's obviously the, the one. And then one more, ACDC. Ooh. Love ACDC. Any that's, so- drive, that's, that's driving music for me. Highway to Hell. Any songs particularly? Highway to Hell, obviously. Highway to Hell. Yeah. yeah. It's all great. It's all great. It's um, ACDC. Love them. If anybody needs a workout playlist recommendation, ACDC, I recommend it. <laughs> Dirty Animal. Deeds. It's great. You know, you're pumping iron. Yeah. <laughs> um, Never, I, I don't think I've ever played them on the radio. 
because uh, it just doesn't really fit the world that I, you know, operate in on radio. I might have played yeah. them once or something, but they're not regulars on the playlist, but they're in the car. Interesting. You mentioned the new romantic uh, movement. Did you participate in any of those giant hairdos or uh, eyeliner? Well, what I haven't told you mm. is that I was in a band <gasps> from 1975 through 81, 82, like a couple of years with a bunch of friends. And I was the singer because I couldn't <gasps> play an instrument. There was a bunch of friends sitting around in a pub in Litchfield in Staffordshire in England, where I lived at the time. And uh, we're all drinking there because that's that's what we did. What do you do after work? You go get drunk. So mm -hmm. we were in pubs a lot. And I was sitting around with a couple of friends who were musicians who play guitar. And the, the two guys who play guitar were like, hey, man, we should get a band together. And I was like, I'll be the singer. <laughs> so I was in a band. We started off being called Bloop 79. I'm happy to say there's no recordings. Well, they, they exist, but they're safely under lock and key. They're not available anywhere. And then we changed the name to the cassettes, which I still think was a fantastic name. Totally. And then in our local pub at the time, we got kicked out for campaigning for the Labour Party because the guy who ran the pub thought that we were socialists. So we changed the name to Red Cassette. That Amazing. was the name of the band. And towards the end of that, and I went into another band for half an hour called Decadence. Uh, yeah, I had some some hennaed permed hair yeah red permed hair and uh some eyeliner and uh feather earring as, as, as well a, f a dangly earring dangly oh, green feather, that's feather so earring good. as well and so, what yeah. about the, the were you doing any like giant trench coats over like a, a billowy top so so when the cassette red cassette thing folded and it folded because the guy who was writing most of the songs got pissed off when the record labels that we were pitching to, because we went down to London and knocked on the doors at EMI and Polydor and all this kind of stuff, even had an appointment, I think at RCA, we were, you know, lads from up North <laughs> trying to get a record deal without crappy demos. And when they said, uh, you know, um, I like the band, but I don't, don't like the, the songs. The guy who wrote most of the songs, there's nothing wrong with the songs. It's the way you guys play them. So that was the end of that band. He and I are friends again now. He lives in Baltimore, but that's a whole other story. I went into this other band, which we called Decadence, which seemed ap apropos for 1981. Mm -hmm. And my mom worked in Birmingham. She had a, a she worked at an electrical wholesalers that she ran, and it was in a, a shop front. And upstairs, there was a guy who was a, a designer making clothes. His name was Martin Degville, and he went on to be in Sig Sig Sputnik. For mm. those of you who know Sig Sig Sputnik, they had a moment. And he designed an outfit for me for Decadence. And it was like it was like a big billowy sort of pleather jacket with big shoulder pads, right? Mm -hmm. Like some weird triangular gold buttons. I wish I still had it. And and then the shirt was like a cheesecloth sort of Muslim see-through sort of shirt. Oh my God, amazing. So you could see my, you know. <laughs> my, my pale English body uh, with like a leather collar around it and leather around the arms, right? Oh and then the pants were pleather as well and they were tight as shit. And I only wore them once because I was the band only lasted for three gigs, but I wore these pants and I could not get them off afterwards. <laughs> I, I had to ask for some help. Let's put it that way. Do you have any photos of yourself in this outfit? And can we post them to a social you know, media? I, I, I wish I did have photos because I'd be happy to post those photos. But, you know, <laughs> back in 1982, nobody was thinking, take photos of everything. I know. I know. It's so true. Unfortunately not. 
What the, we will never have your billowing pleather jacket or cheesecloth top um, documented for prosperity. It is, but a hopefully, shame. you know, radio and, and uh, podcasts are theater of the mind. So, ladies and gentlemen, just imagine. <laughs> just, just imagine a young Nick. Terrible. I mean, with a that. feather, with a dangly so feather uh, earring. With the, fe with the feather earring, yeah. <laughs> Nick, I have to ask you the final question that you ask everyone, which is how are you feeling after this conversation <laughs> as a guest on your own show? Well, I asked that question because when you're sitting and talking to somebody for 30 or 40 minutes, it's, it's an intimate conversation when you're talking about your life and things that are important to you. So I always like to ask people at the end of it how, how they're feeling, not necessarily because it's like, oh, look, you just did this interview with me. How do you feel? But how do you mm -hmm. feel after sort of talking about that stuff and getting into your childhood and mm -hmm. these weird moments? And for me right now, that was fun. And it was, <laughs> it was totally fun to, to be interviewed. I like having conversations with people. Obviously, I've made a living doing it uh, and it can be fun sometimes and sometimes not so fun. But I always feel like I get something out of it at the end as, as a host. And then as the subject of the interview you just did, it's so much fun to talk about music and talk about the things that you're, you're passionate about and like asking me about who do you think should have made it but didn't. Just it's mm -hmm. great to be able to t turn people onto a, a song that perhaps they've never heard and then just to tell people a little bit about yourself. I mean, th there's no real secrets in, in my life at this point. I'm too old for that shit. Well, I, I, your honesty throughout this interview has been refreshing and inspiring. <laughs> hey, I told you about Gary Glitter. Come it on. It has been. And also, I've learned a lot and I didn't know I learned something new that you were in a band yourself. So yeah, I was in a band. And, you, and the other thing I didn't tell you, and we should include this, is I released some music about three years ago <gasps> under the name Jump Circus. One word, Jump what? Circus. Oh my gosh. There are, there, are, there are three songs out there. Go take a listen. I've got one more that I'm going to drop just very quickly. I probably should have talked about this earlier on, but around about seven or eight years ago, I'd just gotten into a, a new relationship, fortunately, the one I'm still in. And, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, and, and, and my partner is a, a musician, Keita Klein. And I found myself talking to her about music and not really having the language because I don't play music. So I decided that it was time to learn how to play guitar. When I was a kid at 14, I was discouraged. And I tried again a couple of other times and I just always put it down and just gave up. So about seven years ago, six or seven years ago, I decided I'm going to learn how to play guitar. So I learned how to play guitar and I figured, why don't you write some songs? So I wrote some songs and then I played them for a friend, a guy called Gary Jules, who some people will know from his fantastic cover of Mad World from Donnie Darko all those years ago. Oh he said, gosh. you should record these. Yeah. So he said, you should record these. So I pulled a friend in, Ben Peeler, who's an amazing uh, pedal steel and uh, lap steel guitarist who's at with the Wallflowers right now and a couple of other friends. And we went into the studio and we recorded four songs and it was no rush. I, I, I did overdubs a year later and that's because we recorded them live. And then we mixed it a year later and then we mastered it a year later. And then I released the tracks a year later. So here we are seven years later. I've still got one of them I haven't released yet. But yeah, I have made some music that I actually wrote. I mean, and for people listening at home, Nick, so if you go put in Jump Circus on Spotify, he has a song called I Know You're Scared, and he also has a song called Concrete and Sand that has 700,000 plays. This is not child's play. This is not too shabby. I, real I, I will, shit. 
<laughs> I will say that the last song that I put up there about a year or so ago called Beauty and Pain, I think has 1,000 spins. So a little So what? <laughs> Don't tell people the truth, Nick. You're being too <laughs> honest again. Yeah, well, I, I, I had Keita do a verse on Concrete and Sand. I think it may be her fans who like that one. Keita, who, who full circle, does our intro music for this show. Well, it was does free. Does the theme song. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, again, your honesty is messing me up here, Nick. No, we chose that song because it's so amazing. Well, yeah. Keita does intro and outro. Yeah. And sure, you might be cohabitating with the artist and we got it for free, but that's for us to know. <laughs> well, I think I asked all of your your questions, Nick. You did great. You were a great <laughs> guest on your own show. <laughs> Thank you for coming on your own show. Yeah. This was a pleasure. And if you're listening at home, stay tuned. Next week, we're going to have the founder of Paper Magazine, David Hershkovitz, on. And nice producer elizabeth will go back to her booth i was gonna say you should just do the interviews i, I think <laughs> no. you, you do a great job i'll produce and you do the interviews no way hey thanks <laughs> thanks nick thanks for listening the sound of success is produced by elizabeth thompson with myself nick harcourt for spark network our theme music is by keita clay for more episodes find us on spotify apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com 